Welcome to Love Extremist Radio. Being a love extremist means committing to and choosing love as joyful activism. I'm your host, Ethan Lipsitz, self-proclaimed love extremist. Love can exist everywhere, and yet, when talking about it, we all seem to define it differently. There are many environments and individuals to whom love seems lost, or was never there to begin with. I want to engage myself, my guests, and you to confront love, get to know it as it appears in many forms, and learn from others who have love stories to share. I'll focus on three frames of love, self-love, love in partnership, and love in community. My intention is to uncover and share stories that shed light on love in new and often forgotten ways. Hey, Michelle. Hi, Ethan. <laughs> so we are introducing this week's episode of Love Extremist Radio with Dahlia Farlito, the co-founder of White People for Black Lives. And we're here on our dining room table, and we're thinking about things to love. Yes, we are thinking about things to love in a time like this. And we're recording this podcast, and to give some context... Um, everything happened this week. Well, the, <laughs> the convergence yeah. of many things happened this week. Um, we are in week 11 or 12 of COVID-19 of the country world being shut down. We are um, two weeks out of Ahmaud Arbery's death being, which happened in February, um, being portrayed on the, on the, in the national media. Um, which is a violent hate crime. And we saw the murder of a black man in Minneapolis. And Breonna Taylor between that, Mm -hmm. um, her partner being charged with assault and murder. And And she was murdered by the police in her home. Right. Unlawfully entered. Yeah. Yeah. So, and right now, yes, the streets are lighting up. People are out. LA is on a curfew, 6 p.m. curfew tonight. Last night it was 8 p.m. Um, there's been a lot of folks getting out and peacefully demonstrating. We joined one peaceful demonstration in Pan Pacific Park yesterday. Um, With Black Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah, hosted by Black Lives Matter and Build Power. And it was incredibly powerful to be amongst thousands of people who were all there coming from a place of love, ultimately, and really recognizing the love for all humanity and how we all need to be recognized and treated as humans, full humans. Right. Yeah, it's been a very heavy week period, um, but I cannot imagine how difficult and heartbreaking it must be for anyone (laughs) in the BIPOC community, um, especially black Americans. Um, There's so much violence. There's so much blatant racism in our country that so few people have been willing to acknowledge. And it feels like this was a breaking point. These riots that have been occurring and protests that have been occurring throughout the country. Um, I think yesterday Patrice uh, said that there were 39 riots in 39 different cities across the United States, which is amazing mm-hmm. um, and really powerful. And it feels like we're at a tipping point, but I also know that we've been here before. Yeah. And I think it's important to recognize there 
uprisings that are happening um, and many times initially peaceful um, and some of the folks that are uh, showing up are don't have good intentions and also the police are showing up with violence 100 percent, and that's really where you're seeing um, aggressions taking place is police using their batons using tear gas getting using in people's faces bags, yeah totally incredibly aggressive in new york they ran people over right <laughs> like, i mean it's, it's 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 awful to see the destruction that the police are continuing to to serve to people standing up for their rights to survive ultimately and um yeah this is happening nationwide and what it is a call for all of us, regardless of our race or gender or background, to step up, but especially those who identify as white, uh, to show up and to recognize and get behind those leaders and leaders of color who are really leading the charge. Black Lives Matter, um, the organizations on the ground in Minneapolis and Louisville, um, Color of Change has been um, advocating a lot for, for the victims of this violence, but also figuring out how to fund bail efforts, how to defund prisons, how to shift DA races. There's so much we can be doing. And anyone here who's like, I don't know what to do, or I'm nervous to get involved because I don't want to get called out. This is the time to get called out. And I think to kind of mess up and and be okay with that and learn and recognize like if you're getting kind of told, oh, maybe do it this way, or, you know, that's not exactly right, or welcome to the party, it's been 400 years. Mm. Um, yeah, that's real. And I think it's time for us to take that and be sitting in that discomfort, but learn from it and grow and not just, not just kind of shrink away and say, oh, this wasn't for me. Right, or like shrink away from difficult conversations because they're, if you um, maybe are doing your own anti-racism work because it's hard to have that conversation with a friend or a mom right. or a friend's mom. I got in an argument with a friend's mom on Facebook today. <laughs> friend's moms. They're so out I'm, there. I'm not. I'm listen. I'm going to come for your mom if she's being racist. I'm sorry. I'm just going to. Um, I just got off the phone with my folks, you know, and they were like, whoa, things are dark, huh? I was like, yeah. Are you paying attention? Yeah. Like, Where are you? But yeah, it's, you know, yeah, there's a lot. And we're kind of laughing. We're finding some laughter about it. And it's also really heavy and dark. And I don't know if it's appropriate to laugh. But I also have been so inspired by um, the black women in particular mm -hmm. and femmes that I've seen on Instagram and on my feeds who are really shouting black joy from the rooftops and who are not centering white voices and white allyship which i feel like is happening a lot um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of like oh resources for white allies resources for white accomplices whatever and instead they're like no um hello black and brown people here's how we need to take care of ourselves today right, and right. i really appreciate that and i love seeing that um i also think it's amazing that more people are having this conversation and i love to see that more people are joining in on this conversation and finally stepping up and saying this is Racism is alive in America and we have to be actively anti-racist in order to fight it. That's right. And what I love even more than that is that when we don't center white people constantly all the time mm -hmm. in every conversation and we're able to bring the focus back to who it should be on, which is the black community who have gone through so much and 
to see that actively cultivating joy and love is powerful. Yeah, if you aren't already, follow the hashtag Black Joy, um, started by um, the Cruz brothers, um, Walter and Cleaver Cruz, and it's just inspiring and important. And also decolonize your feed, right? Who are you looking at uh, on your Instagram feed or wherever? Um, make sure that you're following black voices and people of color, indigenous, disabled folks from all different backgrounds so that you're in touch with the realities of different lives beyond your circle or your chosen fam, whatever that looks like. Yeah. Um, but really excited to get in this conversation with Dahlia Ferlito um, and share how she came to this work, sorry, they came to this work and really show up in such an incredible leadership position, um, bringing white people for black lives into the fray and advocating for justice for all people. So any other thoughts, any other things that you're loving in this moment? That I'm loving in this moment? I'm loving uh, our friend Mary Majai mm. at Dive and Well. Mm -hmm. um, Rachel Cargill yesterday. Rachel, Rachel Cargill, our friend Saniki Way at Naya Wellness. Definitely. Who is always on, like she is always on. Yeah. And it's amazing i don't understand how she has the energy to do it but she's incredible um richie Resita. richie He's yeah been saying some incredible things um, totally amazing leader um i've also been loving uh k-town for all on instagram nice. um because they are really big on the la budget um yeah. and talking people's budget la people's budget of la so i um I'm, i know some people who work there and who work with them and they're awesome allies and advocates for houseless the houseless population in los angeles and yeah. um all of these things come together right they converge and we need to defund the police so we can fund housing access right? and healthcare, healthcare and education exactly and jobs you know right. la has a 15 percent um unemployment rate right now and instead of um, trying to spend more money on creating jobs they're de divesting seven percent of last year's budget from jobs and allocating it towards policing right. when <laughs> it's not gonna work it's well i mean our crime rates have gone down in 2019 yeah. And they've gone down even more. They were down even more during COVID-19. And then, thanks to police violence, right. they're probably back up. Right. The so, police are proving their, their need by inciting, by creating the need. inciting violence. Yep. We're going to end it here. <laughs> Wait, is there anything that you love? I love that our dog is learning new tricks. <laughs> Bonnie is doing crazy tricks and really bringing joy. And she's such a joyous creature and never been a... Uh, animal person i'm a person person <laughs> but it's pretty cool to be a dog person and yeah. a person person do you think that you became a dog person even more since i showed you the video of what she does when you come home yeah she loves me Th so is much. that what it is she that what hears it did? Me, she hears me coming home and i open the garage and anyway our cheesy cauliflower needs to be looked at. <laughs> please enjoy this episode with dahlia ferlito check out white people for black lives and if you're interested in showing up to a living room salon this thursday 
We'll be having one um, with Darnell Moore to talk about the future of masculinity and the following Thursday with Erica Williams-Simon and Maytha Alhassan to talk about faith. That's going to be good. That's going to be amazing. So Follow them on Instagram too. All of them. Oh, definitely. All three of those folks are very important uh, to follow and um, check it out at extremist.love slash living room. All right. Take care. Enjoy. Bye. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Love Extremist Radio. I'm really excited to be on the phone with Dahlia Ferlito, a white, queer, non-binary, anti-racist organizer and co-founder of White People for Black Lives, a.k.a. WP, the number 4BL. They believe that white people are responsible for ending the white supremacist system And to do so, white people must remain organized, challenge white silence about racism, work in solidarity with and take the lead from people of color-led movements, and acquire the skills needed to interrupt racism on all levels. They are committed to continuous self-education and showing up in healthy ways without reproducing the harm of white supremacy in activist spaces. Their writing can be found on Medium, Knock-LA, and LA Progressive. Welcome, Dahlia. Hello. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being being here and making time. I've been receiving a, a lot of email updates and seeing your activity on the Instagrams, where I'm most active in the social media space, <laughs> um, and really appreciate um, just learning from your example. Um, oh, thank you. And I, I know that it's been an example that has been crafted over many, many years. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to just start with a little bit of that bio behind the bio. We kind of talked about it in our phone call earlier. What brought you into this work? And how did you become conscious of first your complicity in white supremacy, and Mm -hmm. then your opportunity to make change? Sure, yeah. Um, So uh, again, it's great to be here. Thank you for this opportunity to be able to share my story and and share about our work with white people for black lives and be in conversation and community with you and your listeners. Absolutely. Um, So I guess I can, I can just begin by saying I grew up um, working class in a city sort of bordering Boston. um, A couple of mass holes here. Yeah. I was very (laughs) happy about your six on seven number. Um, And uh, and and so uh, yeah, so in 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 my household, I will say it was very like uh, like we didn't really talk about race or racism, but there was certainly an undercurrent of racism that existed within some of my family members and in different ways um, that that was present throughout my childhood. But you know, I didn't really have anybody to mentor me or or to have me to to kind of force me to think critically about white privilege or or white supremacy or systems of, you know, I just didn't really have that. Um, And so it wasn't until I kind of continued a journey of like trying to figure out things related to my class experience that I was educating myself and, and, and kind of got to the, the issue around uh, like class differences and uh, more of a look at um, a critique of capitalism and that's kind of where my journey took me for a long period of time um, through through college and and then, you know, expressing itself in, a, in you know, 
a desire to want to change the world, but from a very, very much from the framework of like charity and not solidarity, um, you know, working in the nonprofit world as a way, as what I thought was going to be the way to get us, you know, to a just and equitable society. And I lived quite comfortably in that notion for many years until 2008, living in Los Angeles and, um, as a queer person, there, I, there probably was no, you know, queer person who was not impacted by Proposition 8 on an emotional, physical, or otherwise level. And so um, when Proposition 8 passed, I was working with a group of folks. Uh, we kind of formed this little uh, collective um, to support um, a, a more intersectional lens about what was happening to remind our communities that, like, uh, marriage equality was, of course, important, but there were so many other issues that were pressing that were not being discussed. And it became very much this feeling of this was the white gay man's issue. Mm. And what about other communities that are being impacted by racism and homophobia and ageism and healthcare and all of these other intersectional issues? And I was lucky enough to have this this group of folks, um, Equal Action, who these folks were my friends, co-workers, so forth, um, to take me along this journey of like enhancing my analysis of, of the limitations of the marriage equality movement. And so, but within that work, um, as we were supporting the resistance to the proposition, there were ways in which I was showing up in the collective that were problematic and that were hurtful that were that were hurting people that I loved and cared about and I had absolutely no idea so I was taking up a lot of space and dominating kind of the direction of the collective dominating the meetings I was getting a lot of outward credit and validation for the work that the collective was doing um, so there was there was a lot of different harms that were being perpetuated you know that I just was not you know, I, w I was just ignorant. I just, I mm -hmm. literally had no idea. I thought I was just doing the best that I could and doing what I thought was right on behalf of, you know, the movements and so forth. But that was also where I began um, more of an activist space and an activist mentality directly, like with, you know, engaging in street-based protests more and like um, having a critical analysis of like interlocking systems of oppression and like really got like, more critical of the of the nonprofit industrial complex and the work that I had been doing and the work that how I was making my living and just it shifted my lens and then within that one day I got a text from a friend in the collective that said have whitey do it mm -hmm. and so when I got that text it opened up a necessary conversation because I was completely confused and baffled about what this was supposed to mean. But turns out it was a text that was about me that was not meant for me to receive, but it just was an accident that ended up opening up the opportunity for us to have some real honest dialogue about the impact of my behavior. And, you know, when I was told what my impact was by my very good friend, I basically responded the way kind of a lot of white people respond, which is with a lot of defense, a lot of denial, a lot of placing blame on people for talking trash about me behind my back when they could have said things to my face. And why can't you just educate me? And how dare you say that I have privilege? I grew up working class. You don't know anything about me. It was just like kind of, you know, just a lot of um, how, how folks will 
will kind of push back when when being told that we might have certain privileges that um, impact how we behave in the world and how people see us and that can can actually and, and that can slash do harm people that we care about. And so um, luckily, those folks saw enough potential in me that we continued through um, various types of processes to stay in relationship and kind of um, they were committed to supporting my development and they, um, and this person turned me on to the Alliance of white anti-racist everywhere, also known as aware LA. And I encourage your, your listeners to check out awarela.com cool. and, oh, excuse me, awarela.org. Um, and, uh, and they were having something called the unmasking whiteness Institute, which is like a four day kind of all things related to systemic racism and white privilege and just all of these different intersecting topics around white identity development and gave me that experience kind of gave me the language and filled in the gaps and made me understand more about myself and, and why I was causing the harm that I caused and that I needed to deal with the harm, like the impact and not the intent, you know, the like, well, I'm intending to help or I'm intending to mm -hmm. be a good person or all of those things, but really um, how to actually navigate um, the the uh, the impact over intent, which is oftentimes really hard for for, for a lot of white folks, a lot of us to really uh, feel like we need to address and when, when we're being told about um, these issues and, and how they affect our lives. And Can I so, just uh, quickly yeah. underscore something that you just said? Sure, um, sure. I, I just want to recognize the difference between intent and effect. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. often as white folks, we step into a space where we may be harmful or harming someone and our intention is, is good, but our effect is not. And recognizing that the effect is what matters and our intention ultimately is missing the point. Um, and, and, and so our, our focusing on the intention is actually not helpful in getting past um, being a good, uh, uh, standing in solidarity, right? And, and right. yeah, I just want to underscore that because it's a really important point that I think a lot of people get tripped up in. It's like, Absolutely. my intentions were good. What, what did I do mm -hmm. wrong? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, just take a breath <laughs> and yeah. listen to what the impact is and work from there. But, you know, sometimes it's really hard. Yeah. It's hard to do. Yeah. And so then like really to, to, to tie a little bow on the on the topic is uh, of how I got involved. It was I spent many years feeling really scared. I was afraid of causing more harm after um you know, uh, that experience and then going into unmasking whiteness and then attending um, the Aware LA Saturday Dialogues and just feeling really sort of like silenced because I was so afraid to speak up and use my voice because I was afraid I was talk over, I would make those same mistakes again that I didn't really know how to be anymore. And so it took some time for me to kind of recalibrate and find balance. Um, and it came through, you know, just practice and, and you know, um, making sure that I still stayed in uh, movement spaces and not like just left because I was uncomfortable. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then when Ferguson happened and, and there was a, uh, when, when the murder of uh, Mike Brown happened and there was an uprising in Ferguson, um, I was looking for, you know, at that point I was like, okay, I need to work with white folks here more specifically. I can't just be in these like multiracial spaces and assume that that's enough. Like there's really a larger problem here and I need to be part of the solution within, within my community of people who, you know, um, benefit from the system and, and we need to do better at dismantling it. And so 
I was inspired to want to do something, but didn't really know how to best situate myself without being problematic because there were calls from folks in this black led liberation movement to, to have white folks step back and, and really be mindful of the spaces that we're occupying here. And so luckily showing up for racial justice, which I encourage again, your listeners to check out at showing up for racial justice.org um, mm-hmm. where like they're a national white anti-racist network and organization. And they, they came about after the Obama presidency, which I could talk a little bit about at a different point in the conversation, but um, they they had a call out for white folks who wanted to engage in this, um, you know, burgeoning Black Lives Matter movement. And so I sat on this call with like 500 white folks from across the country um, to get tangible ways that we could be supportive to the Ferguson uprising and then to the larger uh, Black Lives Matter movement. And I reached out to my friends in um, Aware LA to check in to see what might be happening locally. Long story short, I had a meeting in my living room and I had like 25 people show up um, who were dedicated to figuring it out together in community. And so we've been doing that now as white people for Black Lives in Los Angeles going on our six years and in solidarity with the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter and Justice LA and a number of organizations here in Los Angeles to really move the needle on racial justice and on criminal justice issues and decarceration and really just put being a support to making the world just and more equitable and more livable for all of us. Mm. It's, it's such a important story to share and I really appreciate you doing it. I'm sure you do it often in terms of your journey into this. And there's a lot of little moments along the way that I'm, I'm curious about picking apart because I'm going through a similar process um, Mm -hmm. of learning and, and, realizing where I may have caused damage in the past and how to um, be in solidarity and effective um, and, and, and supportive. One thought that came up was um, recognizing the kind of individual versus the collective. And right now we're in this interesting time where I think that's coming into question every day for people as we're in this pandemic and thinking about how can we support those um, in our, you know, humanity, really, so that we can all thrive and survive. And it requires us to let go of a lot of our individuality. But when I hear back on your story, it feels like maybe there was still an individual interest when um, the um, kind of looking at gay marriage and, and equality in marriage as being mm-hmm. kind of an individual interest that brought you into a collective organizational mm-hmm. space. Would you mm-hmm. say that that's kind of a necessary trigger for people to get involved is like something hits close to home? Yeah. So I think, I mean, you know, I think there's a lot of different reasons that a lot of people get involved and I, I, I would shift actually um, from individual interest to what uh, one of our values with showing up for racial justice is, which is mutual interest. Mm. And, and, you know, in our, one of our fearless white anti-racist elders um, who is no longer with us and Braden um, talked a lot about mutual interest, talked a lot about um, as she at one point, I believe termed it self-interest, but there's, there's different ways that it has been couched in that, like for, for, for folks to sustain in, um, these types of movement, 
that we need to, everybody needs to realize that we're actually doing it for ourselves as much as other people, mm-hmm. because oftentimes um, the way that like uh, people of different privileges have engaged in in work, uh, whether it's humanitarian work or charity work or nonprofit work, has been very much like I am the outsider. I am the controller of all of the resources. I am all knowing of where these need to go. And I know exactly better than the people who are impacted by these injustices, what to do. Mm. And it creates this like power dynamic. Um, And so, you know, what we suggest is like, we're doing this for, for, um, for ourselves. We're doing this out of solidarity. We're doing this out of solidarity and not charity. And we're, we're doing this because, you know, we also recognize that even the systems of white supremacy harm white people, too. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as clearly articulated or as seen, but it is true in very clear and nuanced ways. Of course, it's not going to be to the extent of of black folks, indigenous folks and people of color. Of course, we can we, we know this. And we recognize that if we do um, change the system of white supremacy, that everybody will benefit and we'll all have a better opportunity to thrive mm-hmm. and that it's up to us as white folks to identify our own personal stake for ending white supremacy. So that is the work that we also do too, um, within white people for black lives. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I, I feel like there's this urgency to educate or, or inform those who aren't yet clear on the benefits of ending white supremacy as white people. Right. Um, and similarly, so the, the reason I asked that question is because I had this kind of like personal awakening, you could say, to mm-hmm. stepping into a life dedicated to love and ultimately love not in the cheesy Valentine's Day way, but love in the service of healing. And I, and I define that broadly, self and then collective um, being intertwined and one and the same, ultimately. Um, and... I guess, yeah, I wonder, like, I needed that trigger of a brain cancer diagnosis Mm -hmm. to then say, yeah, wake up, dude. Like, Mm -hmm. what are Mm -hmm. you doing? You know, like, step into right livelihood, step into alignment. And I'm still trying to figure that out. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's a lifelong process for all of us. Yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, I I appreciate you you articulating that, that it is mutual benefit. And, um, Mm -hmm. and, and being able to recognize that. I mean, I, I speak, have spoken to folks in workshops around diversity and inclusion training, and mm-hmm. oftentimes it's like there's this co- there's this conversation, especially in technology companies, that they're lowering the bar for entry into their company in the for in sake of diversity, wow. which is so awful. Um, wow. But but to to reframe and recognize like the value of a diverse team. And actually mm-hmm. that's you know been shown time and time again that diverse teams actually are more productive and more effective and more successful. And like there's all these business metrics that show that it's actually valuable to have um, different types of people in your, in, your, in your group. And I just think um, recognizing that value in our life and in, in everyone's life um, is, is something that feels like part of this, that mutual benefit, but. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and I will say that, you know, people do enter into this because most people will have some sort of awakening, some sort of activation point, some 
point at which they see like enough is enough and I need to do something about it. Um, I do think that the motivations will vary and then we need to think about, okay, once we got you through the door because you are activated because you saw this, whatever uh, horrendous thing in the news, well then how do we, how, how do you realize that, okay, what's the next step here? The next step is we need to keep you engaged in, for the long haul and not just this, um, situation which we have you know a lot where it's like episodic response to things so yeah. like you know when trump gets elected and then there's you know 150,000 people at the women's march but okay where are those people every other day every other week and so forth because i think that like you know that that rage can be harnessed for only so long before something else needs to be a motivator for people to stay engaged. Mm, that's such an important point. I imagine that the pandemic has driven an uptick in mm -hmm. folks. I mean, not only are we more on our technology, but we're you know we're seeing what's coming through. I mean, um, you know, I, I know Sean King puts out quite a lot, um, but there's a number of others um, that are speaking out just in the space around mm -hmm. what's happening in terms of pr police brutality and lynching um, mm -hmm. of black lives. Um, and, and it's being it's like th these episodes seem to be coming more and more frequently, but we're also paying more and more attention. And, and there is more bandwidth to pay attention because we're not necessarily as distracted by our livelihood um, yeah. all the time. Um, but I guess that leads me to this next question, which is how do you think white people should step into these spaces, um, whether they be intersectional or not? Um, you know, these spa the spaces, I mean. Um, you know, how, how do you think, what's the appropriate approach? Because I see a lot of, a lot of peers or um, white folks kind of starting to speak out and following prompts, um, but doing it from this place that feels a little disingenuous or a little bit still like centering themselves. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I and I, I just am really grappling with how <laughs> how to kind of disassociate from our natural nature uh, of being an individual and 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 showing up for the collective. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that, like, that's an important question. And I think at the heart of it is really around, like, how can white people be most effective? Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, you know, especially now, because the what action looks like is, is much different than at any point in time. So taking anti-racist action is, is quite limited to, you know, digital space and then the occasional car rally or things like that. But it is it is more limited now than ever. So, you know, if you were to ask me this question a few months ago, I think the response would have been much different than it is right now. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there's certainly a space for um, amplification and ampli amplifying the voices of people who are impacted by racism. I think that there is a space for showing other white people um, an, uh, an analysis about the conditions that we are experiencing right now and tying it into um, the system of white supremacy, even if we're looking at, for example, the pandemic and the way that um, we're seeing the stratification of the impact that is heavily you know, the burden is, is placed on people of color and black folks and, and indigenous folks and not as much um, in white folks. Mm -hmm. And so 
so I think that like we're, we're, we are seeing racism play out even in the name of the even in the time of the pandemic. And so I do think that we do need to use our voices um, and to show other white people that we are not complicit with the Trump analysis of what's going on. So there's certainly space for that. And I know that digital space is often where that goes. I think that when that is where our our activism stays is where it's problematic because we can use our voices all day and all night but if we're not doing anything to align ourselves with actual movements actual movement partners that are making changes in in policies in practices um and and actually making tangible material changes for the conditions of people who are suffering right now then our energy um might be limited. Now, I will say, though, there are people that for um, any number of accessibility reasons that um, they can only engage in certain spaces. So if that is your space, like if you if digital space is the space in which you can use your voice and that is the only place because that is what is accessible to you, go for it and just make sure that you are educating yourself about the issues that you're doing it in community with other folks and that you're leading uh, that you're excuse me that you're learning um, by the voices who who are most impacted and who are leading in in their expertise on whatever topics related to racial justice and 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 and, and also using your your digital space to amplify the platforms of, of these of these people as well and then you know then there are other layers and there are people who can engage in different other ways and whether it's you know writing really well and you have access to you know medium or la times or whatever huffington post whatever you know you can certainly use your voice to to amplify an analysis or an anti-racist analysis to the broader community um and then there's there's ways that you can get actively involved in you know your local chapters of um, you know because showing up for racial justice for example has has over 100 chapters across the country and so there are active chapters of white folks um, who are trying to take anti-racist action in their locality so you can actually find that a chapter um, by going up going to the showing up for racial justice website and you can get your local chapter information there mm -hmm. and then you know there's you know, making sure that whatever spaces you are operating in, whether you are in direct action spaces with um, specific solidarity partners, um, whether you are in meetings with with um, solidarity partners or people who are um, directly impacted by whatever issues you are uh, you care about that you are advocating on behalf of correcting, <laughs> then like it's about you know being in a space that is right sized. So like what I what I mean by that, it's about not being in a space where you are taking up all the space and you are dominating and dictating because that's because that's like what's reinforced for white people. That's like you get the A plus in class for that behavior. Totally. Um, so we don't want to show up in spaces as I have always affectionately termed as as a sledgehammer. So, so yeah, with the hero mentality thing, right? <laughs> right, exactly. The, the I know what's best for you thing, and and here's the plan, and you better listen to me. Um, and so we we want to avoid that, and we also want to avoid you know what what I know I feel I went to, and and I still feel like it's something I struggle with, which is how to effectively use my voice. So so the other half, the other the other way of looking at it is like shrinking. So you're completely silenced, and like you just need to sit in a corner and be quiet. And I've had some of my friends who I organize with like turn to me and be like, 
no, we, we actually need your voice. We, we want your opinion, <laughs> like, please, you know, so, so, you know, it's finding a balance of making sure that you are contributing in effective ways without contributing in ways that, that are um, harmful in the spaces that, that you are in. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm grappling with, um, exploiting privilege. <laughs> and yeah. what I mean by that is I am a white cis man um, who generally has trust and access um, to groups and leaders and conversations that many people would say have power or have influence. Mm-hmm. Specifically, I would say in capitalism and in circles of entrepreneurship and art and various areas where I would say anti-racist work and um, just showing up for justice work is less um, less of a priority, I'd say. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's there, but it's, it's a little bit of kind of an afterthought or being paid lip service or kind mm-hmm. of like a diversity and inclusion workshop. You know, it's like it's there, but it's not exactly top of the list. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess I grapple with like that question of do I use this like access to make this higher on the priority list even when there aren't people of color you know disabled folks in that conversation or is it better to find those folks to bring them in or you know like i i guess like Mm -hmm. because that all feels like prescriptive you know it's like Mm -hmm. how do you step into a space that's all white and it not be prescriptive Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and you know, and, and yet, I guess, yeah, taking the lead from from spaces that aren't um, is, is, is a great example. But yeah, mm-hmm. what's your response there? Yeah, my response is that, like, you know, that it's it's. Um, it, it is hard to uh, know exactly how to respond to each space that we have access to because I think there are a number of different dynamics that exist in all in, in each space that are like unique to that space. So it would be like hard to like blanket say sure. this is the way you need to be in this space or that space or other spaces. I do think that there's certainly room for us to think about when we do have access to certain spaces that are all white that we push those spaces to think about why that is mm. and to actually bring in the voices because that that's part of that of our allyship is that like if there's nobody in there that's talking about this shit then we have to like that is our responsibility in that space to make sure that these topics are being brought up what we have to be um speaking you know with with our voice because Mm -hmm. there are other people that are not at those tables and that's like the the least that we can do, I feel, when we have um, access to spaces that are homogenous and that are dominated by white people, particularly dominated oftentimes by white men, mm-hmm. um, and that it, we do have to use our privilege because they will listen to us more so than listening to other other folks, um, so particularly like people of color, um, who, you know, are often dismissed when folks you know bring up issues around privilege power 
racism and other types of um, oppressive dynamics that exist in the workspace or other spaces. And so I think it is our, our, our job, even if there aren't people of color in the room, to raise these issues. And then the next level is like, okay, like we are forcing this dialogue, we're forcing this conversation, we're forcing a change, we're forcing a shift in this atmosphere. And part of that is we need to make sure that this space, you know, is accessible to people who are not white or not white cisgender heterosexual men. Right. And and that's where, you know, I know oftentimes like the sort of diversity and inclusion workshops and things like that get used as like a, a problem solved for for that. Yeah. Um, and and but what you know, what that ends up doing is like there's there's oftentimes in my personal experience, which is limited because I'm not a diversity and inclusion instructor, but I have done workshops and we do get requests from various institutions to support in this arena. So I do have some experience and in my limited experience it is often like there's some for some reason there is a recognition that this is that this issue needs to be addressed and and it could be you know a, for a legal reason it could be because there's you know a couple folks that are kind of leading this work it's because they think it's good for business there's just like all these reasons right. or you know and so then they reach out and what they do want is give me the the one to two hour you know brown bag lunch version tell me the things that i need to say so that i can check off this box so mm-hmm. i can say hey like we we got this cultural competency training and now we're good Mm-hmm. Um, instead of doing the actual long-term investment and in taking a look at how white supremacy culture is enacted in this space and actually developing meaningful an- antidotes to changing that atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And then and then the next level level is making sure that, you know, they're the the workforce or or the corporation or the management, however you want to frame it, is actually reflective of you know like diversity right and that's really hard for people to imagine like letting go of like you know um and and realizing that one of the one of the things that actually needs to change is that they do need to like change the composition of their of of whoever is operating in their spaces and that is um something that i think is like uh, like harder for folks to reckon with And, you know, so until that day happens, if we are white folks with this consciousness about racism, then, you know, we have to fill fill in that gap until there's an actual, you know, material shift. Yeah. And I think you bring up a really important point, which is this concept of having to let go, like especially those in power, having to release their power, release their um, privilege um, release their financial abundance, right? And there's there there's there's this interesting, um, yeah, scarcity mindset, I guess, in terms of limited resource means, you know, we have to fight for what's ours, and right. people feel like this meritocracy, you know, like I <laughs> I fought for what I have, you know, uh-huh. and and so what like I know that that. I subscribe to an alternate view of resource. And for many of the resources we actually need to thrive and survive, healthcare, education, food, mm-hmm. we have access to feed and support all of us. Right. And so even money, like we have enough 
for everybody. Right. <laughs> it's just yeah. not distributed. And right. so, so I guess I might, I'm curious, like how you respond to people who really grapple with this sense of what do I have to give up in my life, right. you know, for someone else. And, and how, how do you kind of approach that mentality? Yeah. And I mean, that's like the $50 million question. Even. <laughs> totally. Like we're, we're constantly trying to figure out how folks, you know, of various types of privileges can see the benefit and the value of dismantling oppressive systems. Like, I think that like, that's what it comes down to. And we're constantly trying to figure out what's the messaging, what is the narrative, what, how can we shift this? When all of the mess, like when, when, you know, on a practical sense, there's something like the machine of Fox News, right? That yeah. is so ever present. It is very well funded. They, they get in line with their messages and, you know, continue the same messages on repeat about who to blame for the current state of things. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that's what we're up against that, you know, we are underfunded in, in every way possible for like, you know, organizing, especially compared to the right, like, we, you know, have such a diversity in thought and opinion that like, it's hard for us to really coalesce around particular, you know, a particular key messaging or platform all the time, to be able to sort of like push forward a, a, a unified narrative. Mm. Um, and it's just like, generally harder for us to be able to um, have the ability to to like be in spaces that consistently push push back against people with the mindset that thinks that that think that they have nothing to gain mm -hmm. and so these are these like other factors i know that's not the question that you asked but like it's sort of like yeah. these are, these are these other factors that that are like that we are dealing with when what we're really trying to do is like connect to folks and say hey actually like you will benefit from this shift too and we're working on some different, some things like one thing that we actually started, uh, we had a campaign on, um, for the past year was relative to the local ballot measure, uh, measure R, which was a mm -hmm. kind of, it was a decarceration measure. And so there was a deep canvassing effort to actually have conversations with white folks, with other white folks around divesting from incarceration. Mm -hmm. A bipartisan really, issue. What was that? A bipartisan issue right 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 and and you know and we over these past couple months um through showing up for racial justice they've also been doing this this phone banking talking to folks across the country around incarceration around immigrant detention and 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 really like folks like getting having conversations with other people without like this huge um weight of like I need to be right in my political beliefs but really getting to the heart of like what's going on for people and the pain and the fear that's underneath that that they're then reacting from a scarcity mentality mm. and I think like that's really like our work is really getting folks to think beyond the fact that like what they have they have to keep because I need all of this because I need to provide for my family and if I don't have it, I won't be able to. And the reason why I might not have it is because of them, the, the others, those people, the people right. that don't look like me. Um, and, and that's what feeds that mentality that we need to break. And it's really, really hard to do that in this political moment. And it's particularly in the pandemic. And it, But I think that like overall in this political moment around the last few years, 
with who we have at the helm of things in the White House, like, Mm -hmm. um, it's really up to us to like support a narrative shift so that we get, we, you know, I know the name of your podcast, right. Is like, (laughs) is around like love extremism. Right. And Mm -hmm. like, that's what it comes back to is like, we need to connect with our fellow humans around Mm -hmm. the fact that like, at the end of the day, like, we actually do want the same things. Like everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be taken care of. Everybody wants a good school for their kids and everybody wants healthcare and everybody wants good food and clean air. Right. Like, I don't think you could ask a Republican, you know, whether or not they, they don't want those things. I, I, I would suspect that everybody does. Yep. Yeah. And so how do we connect on that? You know? You're yeah. bringing me right into what I was <laughs> what I was going to ask next, which I think is like that is where there is abundance in this movement is love. Yeah. And when you talk about Fox News or any of the other outlets, um, even the White House, like I, I, I'm not seeing love there. And I don't know. Yeah. I think we can all kind of agree. Like there's generally an energy of anger, of um, mistrust of doubt, of fear, Um, but I'm not seeing a lot of of love coming out. And so that then kind of gets me to the next question, which is first, first one was like kind of going back to that conversation we were having earlier, where it's like, how do you personalize it so people care? And, and that brings it back to like mutual benefit, but also like, mm-hmm. how do we find those commonalities, that common need? And, and to me, like right now in the pandemic, it's healthcare, right? It's like, right. you know, we can find common need for universal healthcare in this time because while, yes, the pandemic is definitely affecting disproportionately uh, black and brown bodies and people of color and, and lower income folk, this is a, a, a universal issue in terms of it being something that can hit anyone. And there's plenty of anecdotes of it hitting friends and family members uh, mm-hmm. from across the economic and, um, you know, b- background spectrum. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think this, this question of love is, is a really important one. And, I'm, and the reason that I'm doing this podcast and that I'm focusing on love is to redefine it in terms of action. And to, to take it out of the realm of just romance and just the individual, right? So, like, I say the individual being, I only love my chosen family. I only love my mm-hmm. partner. I only love the people who I can, quote, unquote, trust. And bring it into the realm of, no, love actually is only really existing when we can show up for all of humanity, for all mm-hmm. people. And so mm-hmm. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but what what do you define love as? I mean, I, I would agree. I think that like, you know, love is connection. Love is our imagination. Love is our ability to survive. Love is mutual aid in the time of a pandemic. Love is, you know, uh, the fact that like people at the end of the day, you know, really care Mm. about, about you know their families and their friends and i think we have an opportunity to do more than just look beyond you know our our most intimate networks and and beyond um to the broader world but i think we because that love already leaves an imprint in our minds bodies and souls that like we just need to be able to harness that love to be able to go beyond those in which we know to 
to the rest of the world in which we we may not be connected to. And, and love is the powerful driver for that. I mean, the love of life is what keeps us fighting. You know, the, the love for our community is what keeps us fighting. You know, the love mm-hmm. for families of, you know, for, for us and the work that we do, the love for the families who are impacted by police brutality. Um, you know, I think it's just, it underlies everything that we do um, mm-hmm. as humans. And it's the most powerful I think I think it's the, the, the most powerful emotion um, that, that we have and it has the ability to transform and to transcend and to go beyond lifetimes, I think. Definitely. And it also becomes crystal clear when our life is in the balance. You know, as I shared earlier, you know, for me, it was about facing mortality and realizing love is the only thing that matters. And ultimately, Mm -hmm. love is not about hoarding, you know, this emotion for the chosen few. Love is about spreading it out as far and wide as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. And when I think about it in that context, I mean, I initially was drawn to this idea of extremist love in the face of extremist hate. Right. And so Mm -hmm. if you were to look at those two groups and, you know, you're coming down, I have this vision, I'm like walking down a mountain and down in, you know, where the bottom of the mountain is the beach and you have one bonfire over here where the hate group is gathered. And then you have another bonfire on the other side where the love group, I don't mean to be so binary about it, but like, you know, you have these two options and where do you want to be? Right. Like mm-hmm. which, which bonfire mm-hmm. do you want to hang out at? Mm-hmm. And I think like we there's a general sense that like we are all craving to be in that love bonfire, yeah. even those who yeah. hate like. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I mean, think about how you feel when you love like in your body, you feel relaxed, you feel at peace, you feel joy. Mm-hmm. And you can see the expressions of that when people are doing things that they love. And then you see when people hate, like these examples of white uh, supremacist extremists, like, um, you know, the gatherings in Charlottesville or beyond anything that you see. And you see the tension in people's bodies and that anger and that hate and that rage that you can tell is slowly killing them. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. Like it is not something that you know, you can, you can actually like hang on to as an emotion and survive, right. And Mm -hmm. live Mm -hmm. and it's not sustainable and it's only hurting, you know, it's, it's hurting everybody, of course, but you know, it's also hurting the people that, that go to hate as their default emotion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you can't survive in in a culture of hate for very long. Mm -mm. So what does the future look like to you? Well, you know, I think I think we're at an opportunity where we're at a crossroads and I think we have some choices to make as a as individuals, as a collective, as humanity, as the world. And I think that we have an opportunity to take a road that shows us that there is a different way where love is possible, where love is the default emotion, where connection is possible, where everybody can thrive. And then we have another option, which is to continue down the road that we have been where disconnection and hate and trauma and fear is the norm. And I just want to hope that we, you know, that we do better than what we're doing now and that we all collectively um, survive this, this, this trauma 
and make sure that no more traumas happen for our people ever again. And I hope that there's a huge lesson to be learned by those that are in power that, you know, the decisions that they've been making thus far um, are not sustainable. And, you know, I just hope that we do better than watching capitalism trying to save itself right now. <laughs> May we intend on that. Yeah. I, I really, um, I really appreciate that, that perspective and that view. And, and also, um, yeah, I, I use the word intend because I often think of hope as this kind of passive waiting mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. intention is like action, you know, like, and yeah. there's so many things that you've already mentioned that we can be doing to take action and to be in choice. Would you say there's like a daily practice that you have that's kind of a loving practice that you cultivate for yourself so you can show up for the world? Yeah, absolutely. I meditate every day. Mm. I work out every day. I laugh every day. You know, I think those are things that keep me going. I have an amazing partner that um, supports me and makes sure that I smile every day. Mm. I, ha <laughs> I have one of those too. I'm grateful, <laughs> grateful for her. Absolutely. So, so one other thing that came up when you were articulating the, the future, because I, it's interesting, I, I recently um, was kind of having a back and forth with someone, um, a man of color on Instagram about that. And I was kind of articulating a future that I said was post post patriarchal and um, was collective. And I, I think I was being very um hopeful is not the right word, but optimistic and mm -hmm. calling in the future I want to see. Mm -hmm. And this was, um, you know, this past week, which has been a tremendously uh, challenging week um, mm -hmm. for all of us. Um, but especially if I were to put myself in, in the body of a, a man of color. And so for him to read me, um, you know, a, a white privileged cis man uh, making these statements, I think triggered him and mm -hmm. uh, upset him just and, and there was just that was justified. Um, mm -hmm. He said some some hateful stuff to me, which is separate. But like what's important was like, how do how do we not bypass the reality and simultaneously hold the vision and and work towards it? Right. It's like there's this like push and pull of mm -hmm. the tragedy of what is and the love and the connection and the drive for what can be. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know, I, I, I guess maybe it's not being so public in, in that, but, but I want to believe that we can, we can collectively vision board that future and make it happen. Um, mm -hmm. But I don't want to be insensitive to the realities and the traumas that are happening constantly especially right. for our brothers and sisters who are oppressed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's like, there's the both and like, we need our North star. Like if it wasn't for our, our imagination, mm. then we would be limited in what we felt like we could achieve in our lifetimes. And so I think that we do need that imagination so that we know exactly the you know, the world that we are looking for that is the alternative when we do make the concrete wins that we're demanding. So I think that like it's a like I mentioned, it's a both end. We need to continuously 
vision, the, the world that we want to see. And then there's the practical pieces of, okay, well, what are we actively doing every single day to get us there? Mm-hmm. And that's where we're also wading through the current pains of this, of this world. And so I do think that there's the time and the space for like where we're bringing in our imaginations versus where we're bringing in and holding space for um, the, the actual lived pain that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. And um, personally, like if we're talking even in the most basic sense of like a, you know, a, a, a social media post, I think that like, you know, there is no imagination that can, can, cannot acknowledge the, the reality. Right. Like it has to go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that that was a lesson well learned this past week mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and kind of sat me down and was like, okay, yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, wow. Well, Dahlia, this is this is such an important conversation, and I, I am deeply grateful for your time and and your um, just your knowledge and sharing your experience and and and, and wisdom with us. Um, Want to make sure folks know how to find you and this work and be be allies and and find the right resources. You mentioned Aware LA. Mm-hmm. You mentioned mm-hmm. showing up for racial justice. Mm-hmm. Of course, your organization, White People for Black Lives. Yep. Yep. Um, anything else you'd like to shout out or, or things that you think are important for us to, to talk about? Um, you know, I think, I think that like just a, a quick shout out to make sure like, you know, folks are following Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. There's a bunch of campaigns that are happening in Los Angeles, but can certainly be amplified no matter where you are across the country or world um, for folks to follow Justice L.A., um, and learn more about the amazing work that's being spearheaded to get folks out of jails and to close down jails, you know, in the county and to fund alternatives to incarceration and other amazing work. Mm-hmm. And then, um, of course, you know, our our uh, info, you can find us at WP, the number four BL mm-hmm. on on all platforms. And then there's uh opportunities there to get plugged into our work and the work of our solidarity partners so there's 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 no shortage of work so definitely plug into ours plug into the work of our solidarity partners and just keep keep things going you know keep us moving forward definitely any last thoughts you'd like to share to the love extremists out there the fellow love extremists I <laughs> keep on loving hmm. uh, you know let let love be your guide because hmm. it will never steer us wrong hmm. true that Thank you. To take us out, what's your favorite love song? Um, So this will speak to my fellow househeads out in the world. And so there's this amazing song called Love for Days by uh, Purple Disco Machine. And that that keeps me going. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We'll play play that on the outro. Dahlia, Ferlito, (laughs) this has been a fantastic conversation. Really appreciate you making time and doing it with me. And uh, yeah, I, I look forward to continuing on this work and being part of what you have started and, and continue to do and, and being in solidarity with all of these other groups. Awesome. I look forward to staying in community with you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. This is Love Extremist Radio with Dahlia Farlito. I'll post those links in the show notes. And if you feel this episode is important, I'd love for you to share it with friends and leave a rating on iTunes. Those ratings really help 
this show get more listeners and be visible in the world of podcasts. Have a great week. Take care.